This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Good day, greetings, hello, and welcome to Art at the End of the World, the podcast where we welcome artists, entertainers, and cultural leaders speaking about what it is to make art here at the end. And wonderful to have you here. My name is Mark Wigmore, host of the Oasis on the new Classical FM here in Toronto. And uh, what a wonderful organization it is presenting this second season of the show distributed on the Zoomer Podcast Network. This is where we get singers and theater people and artists and authors and movie stars and TV stars to come on the show and talk about their contribution to the arts world, Uh, what it is they do, how they found their voice, and what compels them and what is happening exactly right now, what they are reflecting on. And I think given the loose thematic vision for this particular podcast. I think our uh, guest today suits it very, very well. This is a conversation I've been looking forward to a lot, and I hope you're going to find it interesting, especially if you've seen his films. Alan Zweig is here, and his most recent documentary is Coppers, which is unbelievable, just a fantastic film, but we think to his big hit 20 years ago, Vinyl, which really put him on the map, Uh, Ikermudgeon, A Hard Name, which I think was the one that really did sell me in the beginning. Hurt with Steve Fonio, When Jews Were Funny. Uh, Award-winning, great documentaries from an original film voice and a man I've had a chance to speak with several times with various organizations and always, (laughs) always an adventure is what it is. So more on Alan in just a moment. We've had a lot of fun over this last few weeks. 2020 Juno nominee Ron Davis was here last Thursday. Uh, Wayne Mangesha from Soul Pepper last week. Howard Shore, the composer. Robert Lantos, Karen Robinson, Alexandra Streliski, the 2020 Juno nominee as well. All available to listen to on your favorite podcasting app. Please do take the time to subscribe. Art at the end of the world is what you are looking for. This episode is sponsored by Red Eye Media, a leading arts and entertainment communications company working with award-winning clients, including the Musical Stage Company, SummerWorks Performance Festival, and many others. RedEyeMedia.ca. Look them up. Uh, Give that crew a call because if you are working with an arts organization or you're an artist or you're looking for representation, you're looking for somebody to help you on your artistic journey, Red Eye Media, great place to visit. The podcast is also brought to you by Crow's Theatre and one of this country's most acclaimed arts organizations based in Toronto's vibrant East End community right at Carla and Dundas. Crow's Theatre creating unforgettable productions that examine and illuminate the pivotal narratives of our times. And a great roster in 2020, great roster last year, crowstheater.com for info and tickets. Don't forget Secret Life of a Mother by Hannah Moscovich, one of this country's great... uh, Playwrights? Gosh, I'd love to have her on the program at some point. It's on stage now at Streetcar Crow's Nest. Go and enjoy a show at that wonderful venue. All right, so let's get to it. Alan Zweig from Toronto. Just a a lot to unpack with this man. He's often been a part of his own documentaries uh, or some degree of focus 
Less so in films like Hurt, where the focus is all on on Steve Fonio, uh, a hard name, Coppers, where we're lo- looking more at uh, specific subjects and a specific topic. But he's still very much a presence in almost every film he he puts together, and that has been really important because Alan can do something that most people can't. He can get to a place of comfort and conversation with his subjects. Uh, I don't know exactly how he does it. People want to open up to him, or if they don't right away, they eventually do. And when you are sitting down with two dozen grizzled cops from Ontario who've been through 30 years of crime and detective work and have watched uh, their family fall apart or have been through something very traumatic, not everybody wants to talk about that. And Alan has the ability to get otherwise tight-lipped subjects Uh, Like police officers, he has the ability to help them open up. And it is a very special trait as a filmmaker. You know, when he sat down with, once again, a hard name, two dozen hardened criminals, people who'd been through the jail system in this country, who probably are looking to put their past behind them. They're looking to try and live the rest of their lives with less pain try and eke out some sort of an existence after a very difficult life lived. And these people, I'm guessing, don't really want to open up about what's happened in their lives. But Alan, with his skills and with his empathy and with his abilities, is able to uh, to help people express themselves and tell their stories. And we are better for it. And I, and I know uh, I'm, I'm speaking about this rather passionately right now. I mean, a lot of times Alan is very funny with what he does. I think we can see films like When Jews Were Funny and Vinyl, which is really the first film that uh, put him on the map, very much about uh, compulsion and addiction and almost uh, mental illness <laughs> around collecting records and LPs. Uh, and Alan, very much a, a subject of that particular film. Very funny in spots, darkly funny in spots. And so uh, he can, he's an auteur. He can be very personal. He can be very funny, uh, but he can also be very sensitive and empathetic with his subjects. And I have enjoyed his documentaries over the last several decades. The Toronto International Film Festival, uh, awarding him numerous times for numerous films, the Hot Docs Documentary Festival, announcing major awards for his filmography over the years. And if you've seen his movies, you know what I'm talking about, but I'm hoping today, based on this meandering conversation we are about to have, that you will be inspired to have a look at his catalog because it is truly great. I am better for exploring his films, and uh, let's get to it. On Art at the End of the World, my guest today, Alan Zweig. You love you, you know love, with your own kid. You love being a father to your kid. Yeah, with your own kid. Sure, there are times when you're absolutely just being used, <laughs> right? But but yeah. there's you know, and I don't like those times. No, either. But that's but you know that that's not all you are. Yeah, you can see obviously you're like essential to their like breath, like everything. There, you're just so. So, and they are to you, like, same thing. Like, and, What is she, and eight? She's eight, eight now? Yeah, yeah. She's eight. That's a good age. And yeah. uh, uh, what does she think of the old man's business? Um, I don't know. I don't know what, I think, I think she thinks it's cool. Yeah. 
But not in the way I think it's cool. <laughs> well, I mean, um, she's very supportive, right? Yeah. And she's also kind of protective of me. It's nice. It has to do, I'm not sure if it's because of my age in some innate sense that she thinks I'm more I, I, fragile. Yeah. And then also in my marriage breaking up, I think I think even like when we broke up, one of us had to move upstairs and leaving the other one to live where we'd been living, which was a little more like we own a house and we live on two floors and our tenant lived on one floor and between my ex-wife and I, one of us had to move upstairs. Right. You know, I think it was a bit too inevitable that I was the one to move upstairs. I don't think it was a serious, it's not like we tossed a coin. But still, my daughter would ask my ex-wife, like, why did daddy have to go upstairs? Right, right. Like, why did you have to live down here? That's how you make documentaries is upstairs. That's how you do <laughs> So anyway, I'm just saying my daughter is protective of me and she's she's definitely, you know, a program to be proud. There's nothing, nothing sweeter than when you think that your kid maybe needs a little ego boost. So you give it to them and talk about how much you love them and how proud you are. And you can, on my daughter, you can see like it ripple. You know, she almost starts to shake. Oh, wow. So <laughs> because she knows that's good for her, she knows it's good for me. Now you uh, you've talked about it often, not often. Are you inter- Is this all going to go on the air? Uh, this stuff I don't know. I don't my know. daughter, you we'll can. See, I we'll can. See. This is what I would do. This is how. This is when people say, right. "How do you um, get people to open up?" The way I do it is, I just start talking, and then fifteen <laughs> minutes in, they go, "Wait a sec. Wait, are you interviewing me already?" <laughs> I go, "Yeah," and then they go, "Oh well, if this is what it is." It's okay. It's okay. Okay, just, I'll keep going. There you go. Tip from the master right there. You, you've talked about being a, a older father, but I have to say, you you're, you wear it well. Like, you 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 know, you're still putting out all these films, and you, you're engaged with your kid, and, and you're doing it. You know, it doesn't well, really... Who, what what example do you have of a, of a older father that wasn't engaged? Well, uh, Donald Trump and Barron? Right. Or, Right, you no, just Tony you, Kurt. No, you sometimes, Tony, Tony you sometimes Randall. saw the dad show up to the soccer practice, and he was like, you know, just having a little harder time, right? You know, getting around. And, well, yeah, <laughs> you no, know, that you know, guy. The, the, there is that. Like my my daughter has this weird, not weird. I guess it's a kid thing, but I don't remember being like this. Where she'll like go to her cousin's house and pick up a guitar and plunk out three discordant chords, and then you go. Uh, sweetie, do you want to take guitar lessons? No, I don't have to. I can play already. Like right. what she just did, that's playing. So, you know, <laughs> she took skating lessons and she got... A little better. A little better. Like yeah. she can move around a little bit. And so I said, do you want to take more skating lessons? And then she said, no, I'm I'm good. Like, And it's like, no, honey, you can get a lot better. Like, And she said, well, I'm better than you. <laughs> and then it's like, how do you know? You've never even seen me skate. Right. Because I haven't skated. <laughs> For 30 years. So you don't want and to have to said, actually prove her right. Yeah. She said, well, you can't run. <laughs> that was her proof. <laughs> if I can't run, clearly I probably can't skate. And it's true, I can't run. That's true. That is a, can you run? Uh, no, I, I don't have the lungs for it at all. I mean, if you had, if your kid was, if you had to chase them, could you actually? I, uh, that I could do if I had to, but. Uh, I do it. <laughs> 
but when I do it, yeah. it's almost like an out-of-body experience. <laughs> like, because there's part of me just going, what the hell are you doing right now? I've often, this is the image I get. It's probably an image from like a Bugs Bunny or a Foghorn Leghorn right. cartoon. I've seen this image. <laughs> it's like there's a big fat goose and it's running and it's kind of jiggling and then it puts its its whatever foot on a sheet of ice unexpectedly and it starts going, whoa. That's me. I'm a fat goose on a sheet of ice. That's how I look when I'm running. Anyway. <laughs> when you're chasing after your, uh, what, yeah. what would your daughter be, a mouse or some sort of a, well, something fast? and Something that's going to run into traffic. I don't know. Like, <laughs> right. Or when we play a game that involves like running. Like I can do, I do a fast waddle. Yeah. <laughs> like, but r- actually running is like, yeah, I haven't I haven't sprinted, you know. So many of us just know you by your voice. I mean, even if we can get that far, like that's how we come to know you watching your films. We just hear this voice in the background. You want to hear a a weird story? So when my daughter was born, she was born five pounds, nine ounces. Pretty small. And they couldn't get her blood sugar up. And I spent the first night holding her uh, on my chest, trying not to fall asleep and, and actually... I watched an episode of David Attenborough's Birds. And she and I love watching nature shows, but maybe that's because I forced that on her. Anyway, <laughs> so they we were in the uh, Sunnybrook, and there, we're in the NICU, the natal ICU. And so the way that place works is you go into this hallway, and then you go into your room. And there's a central hallway where you see nurses going back and forth, And you know they're going to other rooms. But nobody in those rooms ever sees anybody else. Because we go in, we all go in the back way. And one day I got a Facebook message from this woman who said, I'm there with two real preemies. And I hear your voice through the wall. And I know who you are from your films. (laughs) Right. Which my response was, oh, my wife has been saying that I'm talking too loud in that room. Maybe that's why... Anyway, that and then sort of a nice compliment. It was, in it a way, was, it was weird, and that woman who is sort of in one aspect of the of the film business, I know who she is. She knows who I am. But we then we ran into each other at a party at TIFF for the first time in eight years, and then she she said some nice thing kind of about her being in the worst moment of her life and went with her, you know, six ounce kids, wondering if they were going to survive, and somehow. You know, I don't know how far we can take this, but hearing my voice somehow connected her to the world, I'm not, it's not like, well, you're, then I had the will to live because your voice, I, she didn't quite say that, right? but she sort of danced around. Your voice and your presentation and how you communicate with people is extremely special. What you do is beyond belief to me, The what you're able, I mean, you talk about how I just turned on the mics right now and we started talking, we had this you know, a uh, sort of impromptu conversation. You just, you do that for a living. You're able to get inc- well, no, you incredible, for a living. incredible I barely, things. You make a living. I barely <laughs> make a living. You know, the thing about that is if you're a professional interviewer, which I would say you are and I'm not, right. then you probably had to think about how you're going to do it. And in fact, I don't think he worked at the CBC, but he worked for the CBC. He was the guru of, he may still be alive, 
the guru of interviewing, and CBC particularly would get these new hosts like who weren't radio hosts originally, like, right. you know, Sue Kinley or whoever it is. Sure. And they would send them. She was on the podcast, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> she would season. send them to this guy, <laughs> yeah. and he would teach them. I say, you know, in the same way people talk about Robert McKee for screenwriting. He was a Robert McKee of interviewing. Right. And one one time my friend Joey, who used to work at Morningside, told me that I broke this, let's call this guy Joe, Joe Schmo. I broke Joe Schmo's rules. And then he told me one of the rules, and, and I thought, oh, that would be really hard. What was for the rule? Me to f- well, I don't know if I have this right, but he said that Joe Schmo says you should ask open questions, and you ask closed questions. I wasn't sure what that meant, so he gave me an example kind of like, so, Mark, your father died, and Joe Schmo would say, how do you feel about that? Mm-hmm. That is open, I guess, right. in the sense that it gives you a chance to say to me, eh, I feel pretty good. Right. Where I, he says, what you would say is, oh, your father died? You must feel like crap. And I'd be like, well. You're, out, you're directing the person yeah, to, so I'm to feel a certain them. way. Yeah. I'm making them respond that way, I suppose. Well, whereas part of them where, is always going to feel like crap, right, so you can always my, tap into that. Everything that I do that is different than what other people do, I have, and again, I don't know what other people do. I only know what other people do because I've been interviewed. And so I've sort of extrapolated from that. What do they do that I don't do? And why would me not doing that work? None of this has made me do what I do. It just made me analyze. So when people ask me, how do you get people to be honest or whatever? I go, well, I don't know, but here's what I figured out by comparing myself to some straw man that I've created of other interviewers. If if that straw man said to me, your father died, how does that make you feel? Me, I would be, I'd get mad. I'd get, I'd, I'd, I'd distance myself from, how does it make me feel? How the hell do you think it makes me feel? Why are you asking such a dumb question? How does it make me feel? Whereas if somebody says, oh, you must feel like shit. Yes, of course I feel like shit. Yeah. Like that that relaxes me when you say, so my closed question, I think, is better than the open question in that particular instance. Now, that, that may not be, but the thing is. It might, I, tight, it might tighten up the result too, right? Because I think when you do leave it that open, <laughs> God knows it could go so many directions. People could spend half the time thinking about it while right. they're answering it. Well, I th- you're, you're directing them to say, hey, that part of you that is hurt right now, I would like to hear about that specifically. Well, see, the thing is, I assume you have questions. You've thought about me coming in <laughs> yes. and you've prepared questions. That's true. So I don't prepare questions. Now, the advantage of preparing questions... You prepare would, themes. No. You, no, you do. No. You can't do coppers without having the well, theme I, of knowing what you're doing. I have something going in, but the yeah. point is, if I went in and talked to a cop, and he ended up just telling me about, I don't know, like... Well, none of them talked about donuts or something, but if one of them wanted to talk... too bad. If one of them... <laughs> I, okay, all I'm saying is, I have the luxury, because of the way I make these films of not caring what we talk about because I just go on faith that everybody will talk eventually about something that I can use in the film. And it doesn't matter what they talk about some way 
that will just be a piece of the puzzle that I'll use to put this collective story together. But the insurance that you have is, and whether it be a hard name or coppers, is that you've chosen a topic where more or less uh, these, you know, a 30 year career cop is going to have some stories for you. And really that's, it's just open up to you. That's to true. Although the, see, I always give the example of a hard name where, you know, it's not a pleasant topic, but I think it's one, one, one of your best films, six, by the way, out of the seven people in the film, five or six, confess to pretty brutal sexual abuse as a child. Yeah. And I've always told people, because I know this is true, that had I pre-interviewed them, and they had told me about that, and now I was coming to interview them, and basically I know that I need to get them to say the thing they told me yesterday about being abused, I wouldn't even hear anything they said. Right. I would just be like... How the heck am I going to get that topic reintroduced naturally? And I would just hope they would talk about it, and then often they wouldn't, and then I would have to say anyway. So it would now, take it would take away your ability to listen. Yeah, and I yeah. would have to say now, tell me about your sexual abuse. Where in fact, when people tell you about it, it's like you say to them, "Oh well, what's your brother think about that?" Totally innocently. You just think, well, you had that problem. I know you have a brother. What does he think? And they say, well, my brother's the one that raped me. Or something like that. I would say, you know, somebody would say, yes, but if you don't do the pre-interview, you won't for sure get that thing. And I would say, well, how did you get it in the pre-interview? We say save the gold in our business, right? You know, and so if sometimes I'll have people in the studio right before I go on air with them. And I'm realizing they're, they're telling me the best part of... Right. What I want to talk to them Sometimes, about. right, before you turn the mic on. Yeah. Ten minutes. It's the first, terrible. You, sometimes I look in the film and it's like everything I used by that guy was like before I said we started. None of these things are tips. Tips for documentary interviewers do what I do. I don't know if they could. Does everybody deserve forgiveness? Yes. I, 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 yeah, everybody, uh, but doesn't mean that they should be released from prison. I've seen this only in movies, the idea that when you get into prison, the first day, if they don't know you, just, you know, summon up all your psycho ability and just beat up somebody. Make them think you're crazy. That's, that's probably a really good thing to do. I remember doing that a few times down home. Because that way you're left alone. You know, people know you're crazy, so they'll leave you alone. I think that um, somewhere out there, maybe there's one listening. There's somebody, they're about to make a film, and they're going to interview 10 ballet dancers. And they're going to think, well, how am I going to intercut those 10 ballet dancers telling me their stories? I know. I'll ask them all the same 10 questions. And then it's just like each one of them... Da, 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 da. And we've da, seen da, that. Da, da, yeah. Da, da. Yeah. And I'm saying, don't do that. Right. Don't do that. Like, that's going to make a bad film, and it's going to make bad interviews, and you're not going to get stuff that's great. Just go in and talk to them about whatever they want to talk to about and learn how to weave. There's a way to weave their answers to create a collective story 
it's actually boring if you have them all answer the same question. That's actually for everybody involved. Yeah, yeah. So, what you mentioned it in Coppers. By the way, I, I saw Coppers at TIFF, and and I don't know if it was just on my radar a little more, but it felt like this was one of the films that a lot of critics were talking about. And nobody calls the police when they're having a fantastic day. No one. <laughs> it's always the worst day of everyone's life that you're there to witness. When I got hired, the chief at the time said to me, you have just got yourself a ticket, a ringside seat to the greatest show on earth. And boy, was he ever right. The job was fucking pure chaos. It was just adrenaline, it was a rush. Like, we, you could work an eight hour shift and be bored for seven hours and 45 minutes and then go from seven hours and 45 minutes of boredom to 15 minutes of sheer terror. We have men and women that are dropping like flies, and it's not being murdered by the people on the street. We're taking our own lives. So when the police community are killing themselves and people ask me, why are the police so rough on me? Or why did they do this? Why did they do that? God, sometimes some of these cops, and I was one of them, I didn't care for me. Why would I care for you? Outstanding. I mean, I walked out of that film a better person because I had a greater understanding of what police officers go through, what it does to their lives, to their livelihoods, to their psyche, to everything about their lives is is sort of explained through the process that you're talking about right now. So congratulations on that. I will okay. say that. I have to admit that there's a part of me wants to argue with you. It's like, really? It's not that good. But okay. <laughs> if you think, if that, if you, th- and I, if I... Was think, hard was hard name a better film in your no, mind? No, it's not. It's not that. It's that I don't know. This is kind of a little bit in the weeds, so I'm not sure anybody would be interested. So you can cut this out. But <laughs> but I've made a lot of films where, like I say, I interviewed ten ballet dancers right. and weaved them together. Sure, and I made them for some reason out of a lack of imagination or an in, in, uh, inability to find. The subjects I really want to make, or there's a paycheck, or I don't don't get, or I don't get those films made. So, out of the ten docs I've made, there's probably eight of them are essentially, well, seven made in this essential interview. Bunch of people weave a collective story. I know that I've gotten good at it, so that when I do it and I finish, I don't even know if it's any good anymore because it's just like I've just put it through my process. Yeah. So in a way, I'm kind of jaded. Like it's like, no, the reason why you don't know that is good is because you've gotten so good at this that you don't even feel it. And that is sort of true, but it just, I'm kind of tired of making this kind of film, but those are the ones that get... Like, people sometimes ask, why did you make this film? And sometimes the answer is because they said no to the previous three ideas. And that's even a little bit true in this case. I was carrying this in my back pocket for about five years, and I was like, I'll take it out if I have to. Right. And then the day came that I really had to, so I took it out, and they... Of course, they went for it. So they said yes, and so this is the film I made, and... 
maybe that's the kind of film I should be. Well, making, you're you know? anchored, of course. All of us a little bit get anchored to our reputation as what we're if we're good at something, uh, and you are very good at this type of filmmaking. I mean, I have to admit, I, I get my I, I purchase my ticket or I go see a film at TIFF uh, from you because I I want to experience. Uh, your art again. I want to have that feeling again. And I specifically this time I thought, okay, I saw a hard name. I think it's one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. It moved me to tears endlessly. And this coppers feels like we're going to go on a similar ride here. It's different. Yeah. But to me, uh, I was, that was really, I was like, I know you're going to do it so you know well. What's, you yeah. know what's funny about that is that, I mean, when people saw a hard name, I know that people went in with a kind of like, you know, the basic societal animus towards criminals. Yeah, and these are these but, are people who've been through the jail system. They've gone through uh, just desperately horrible times in their lives. And you uh, take some time to, to profile them, interview them, tell their stories. And I think on the other side of it, most people go, all right, I have a brand new, uh, uh, I have empathy now when I'm driving down the street and I see that person. That That it was the... The end game for that film. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't when it wasn't the end game when I started to make it. Right, I definitely. I, I understand. That. I wanted to. I hate this word, humanize them. Right. I hate. Why do we have to humanize well, them? They are human. But but um, I wanted to humanize them, but I didn't realize it would go that far. Anyway, I was just saying that uh, I feel like um, there was more uh, resistance to feeling empathy to cops. Than there was absolutely to, to ex cons. Everybody I've mentioned this film to ever since I saw it has pretty much expressed the same sentiment. Like, oh, really? Oh, yeah. down that road? Oh, and you thought that was hard for them? You know, there is this built-in uh, a block for people that just says, "Well, okay, I guess if cops have had a hard time or what have you, I guess I'll take that in." But no, the empathy is not the same at all for no, hard. No, I mean criminals. it's it's yeah. understandable. Although now I'm not an apologist for cops, but I would just point out to people that I don't think there's a cop unjustly shooting somebody every day. But if there is, that's still like one hundredth of one percent right. of what cops do all the time. And and it really isn't. I'm from Toronto. I we can name the case where we're all outraged when the and that guy did go to jail. Right. I will point out. So yes, I totally get that. And I have been. I was trying to make a film for a few years about one of these police shootings that I thought was unfair. So right. there's. I don't think anybody has anything on me on the outrage department. Well, no, and, it, and if people see the film, by the way, it's not like they're all, these are all uh, uh, guys with halos on their heads. I mean, there's some rough and tough characters in there, so or, it's or, warts and right. all. You yeah, know? well, I mean, it, I wish it could have been more warts, but but they're not <laughs> allowed warts. to tell me yeah. the, the things you would most want to hear. The lawyers wouldn't let me put it in a film. So all I'm saying is, if I have an unpleasant experience with a cop now, making the film doesn't really change that. Like, in that moment, that's an unpleasant experience. Sometimes, you know, I always want to say to them, you know, I made a film of ex-cops, <laughs> like, give them... It sounds like, like you're running into more like, cops than you would like, yeah. Well, <laughs> no, but I've run into a couple lately, and they were, you know, bullying me sure. a little bit, yeah. and 
And, you know, but now I, I don't feel the same anger. I, it's annoying. Like, I'm not excusing it. No. But it just... You have, a, you have a picture of the other 23 hours of their day. Yeah. That's right. You know, the, the thing that's funny about the film is that, you know, it's like some cop said, well, there wasn't anything in it that surprised me. And it's like, no. Well, right. There's nothing in it that surprises cops. <laughs> no. And actually, there's nothing in it that really surprises anybody. I think what surprises you, and because what surprised me, was that I had never thought about the things that when they said it, I thought, yeah, of course you do that. Of course that's your life. Of course you're not solving bank robberies and shooting unarmed people all the time. You're going to the scenes of dead bodies that died on the toilet. Like, my, my, my takeaway, and I've told so many of the stories since I saw the film, but it's just what they find when they arrive on the scene. I mean, they, there's so many incredible tales in this movie of what they've run into, the way, you know, they find the dead bodies, the way the situation, I, I mean, it's just, it's beyond the imagination. Right. So I know. think there's two things. One, of course, the big takeaway line in the film from Christina, from Barry, if she's listening out there, was when she said, nobody calls the police when they're having a great day. No. It's always the worst day of their lives that we're there to witness. So that's what cops see. Like, there's no, they're not going to children's parties. They're going to parties where children went to a party and then died on the way home. Right. You know, like the, there was one story that I didn't use because I just had too many where a woman went to get balloons for the kids' party and then got an accident and then she was talking to the woman. And the woman was in shock, but she was about to die. And then she died, and the car was full of balloons. Oh and then Lord. she's like, I could never get balloons for my kid's party again after that. I can't get that woman with all the balloons going to the party out of my head. So she didn't go to the kid's party to have fun. She went to the kid's party to say, the balloons aren't coming, and by the way, your mother's dead. So number one... I was surprised that I had never thought about that. And then I think the other surprise is that we assume, without thinking about it, oh, yeah, they see that, but they must have a way of dealing with it. Right. And that's, you it's know. It's in the and, training. Or we just don't hear about, we don't hear that they don't have a way of dealing with it. Because if they didn't have a way of dealing with it, how could they last a week? And they last 30 years. It's interesting, though. It ends up being two elements that you hear about a lot in the film. Uh, cops love adrenaline and cops love working as a family and as a team. Those are the two themes that come up over and over again as you're talking to these people, regardless of how bad it went right. for them. That's but what they, they don't, really love. But then the thing, they like the adrenaline, but also the adrenaline it's almost has a chemical effect of burning images into your head like it's almost like the adrenaline is some kind of memory device that just like makes images more vivid and then going home to the family uh, becomes all that much more of a downer you know uh, like, when you're so addicted to these incredible things that you're witnessing every day again to go back to the cop shooting thing but you know one of the guys in film ralph tells a story about a bank robber that he shot and he didn't kill the guy and the guy had a gun, 
and he did kind of have no, but he injured him. Yeah. And he thinks maybe he injured him for life, although he doesn't know for sure. And he has a hard time telling the story. It's, it's emotional for him to remember this. Mm-hmm. But anyway, when he tells the story, one thing he talks about is he, can, he he's like, he, he told me the story and he step by step and then this happened and then this happened. And then he, at the end he said, which I didn't include in the film, maybe I should have, that later the forensic team went through and said, that was 30 seconds. That whole thing that you're remembering in slow motion, in technicolor, with people falling through the air in slow motion and blood spurting out like in some movie effect. It sounds like a movie. That was 30 seconds. Yeah. He is feeling overwhelmed by emotion in a way that... Some of us will never feel feel I, it's like fear and adrenaline and I thought, you can probably hear his own blood cursing through his own veins and he can hear his heart pumping. Now, you could say, well, then the training should be different and maybe it should be, you know. I did think about that as I watched the film. I, I you know, and any great piece of art makes you translate or, or graft over you the experience that you're witnessing. And I, I felt... Uh, it, that I don't know that I've ever had any of the <laughs> experiences that some of these people have. I mean, it just felt uh, so exotic to me. Yeah. And, and I just wondered, I've tried to think back, even when I was a kid, did I ever get in some situation where it was I was that worried or that nervous? I couldn't think of anything that terrible. I mean, some right. kids I think, get in um, fights or whatever. But One yeah. time I was like body surfing or something in India, in right. Goa, and I felt like... There was whatever that thing that sucks you down. The, Why were you body surfing in India again? Well, I was 21 and <laughs> and I, whatever. I mean, it was fun. Right. I mean, it wasn't like I went, I was, the water wasn't even over my head, right? Okay. It was just, you'd go out 20 feet, a wave would come and you'd, anyway, I felt that whirlpool or some kind of, there's some effect where yeah. the, like the water sucks you down. That's right. Yeah. And when I first felt it, I was like, oh, that's not real. But then it started feeling... Real, and then I was sort of an undertow. I was sort of an undertow. I was like yeah. fighting for my life. I still remember that, and that's that's a good well, one. Not quite fifty years ago, right. and it was over in a few seconds, and nobody noticed. And yes, I felt like I was fighting for my life. You're listening to Art at the End of the World. My name is Mark Wigmore. In moments, we'll return with filmmaker. Alan Zweig. You are listening to Art at the End of the World on the Zoomer Podcast Network. We return to my conversation with the one, the only, Alan Zweig. I don't know if I heard this correctly, but you mentioned in the film that you were a cab driver. Yes, I... I, I, uh... Unlike some people in Toronto who are in the were in the film business and claimed to drive cab for a little while, I won't name names. <laughs> I actually made Colin Brunton. Right, he actually was a cab driver. He's a producer on Schitt's Creek and stuff now. And I was an actual cab driver. Made my living primarily from driving cab from around seventy five to. My late 80s. 
There you go. So a good uh, sort of uh, 10 to 15 year run. Yeah. 12, 13, 14 years. That must have something to do with your, your gift for the gab, I would have to imagine. No, but it has something to do with why I hated cops. Right. Definitely. That uh, <laughs> totally. I, you were took, doing some therapy with took this project. Me from a, <laughs> took me from a kind of, you know, like I, you know, I often say it's the same. I grew up upper middle class. My father was a pillar of society. If a cop came to your house, he would genuflect before my father. Right. He would be, he wouldn't grovel, but he would treat him with respect. Then I'm his, my father's son and I'm in a cab and I'm getting grinded down by this cop because I'm a cab driver and we're the lowest of the low. I think that other cab drivers probably took it better than I did, but I was, maybe I was driving cab because I wanted to be a filmmaker, but that part of me that had been brought up to be a king of society, to be Eddie Greenspan or whatever I was destined to be, that part of me was fighting back. Was fighting back yeah. all the time and giving them attitude because what the hell, like, what are you doing to me now? I'm just... And so uh, it was a perfect storm in a way. And the fact that I never got more in more trouble with cops is kind of a shock. But, you know, I, I, I take a cab uh, semi-regularly or an Uber these days. And, uh, you know, sometimes people are very, very chatty and sometimes it's just a nice quiet ride. Where where were you on that scale? Were you were you a chatty person in the cab? Um, I don't remember. I you must have had conversations. I, I with definitely people. had conversations. I don't like it, right? When people don't talk, right? But I don't remember. I I I would just think fifteen you, years of picking people up and getting into conversations. That's got to give. you... I mean, those are strangers, and that's you still do that. So I can see how. Yes. A night of driving cab is a bit like a road movie, and you meet characters. And <laughs> you make a movie about and, that. And and I have thought about a long time ago making movies about that. I don't remember that many things. Right. I remember maybe I have ten stories yeah. that I remember. Actually, there is a story that doesn't involve me, and I don't know if you're. I don't even know if your station would let me tell the story, but. Anyway, yeah, well, the, you're telling the, it now. The, the, uh, no, what I was going to tell, two cops that I interviewed referenced something that happened in Toronto that I remembered extremely well because it had happened when I drove cab and it happened to a cab driver. It's like a story from a, from a bad, like a bad TV murder show. Right. Do you want me to? Sure. Okay, so this this is um, there was a gal and she was uh, let's say twenty years old and she was I guess she identified as male and she had a girlfriend who was like sixteen who lived at home with her father and her father from a let's say an immigrant culture father and the father didn't buy that this gal was a guy with good reason because mm. she wasn't right. So she got desperate to prove it to him. So she took a cab, invited the cab driver up to her apartment, hopefully knocked him out, then removed his genitalia and crazy glued them to herself and then went to the father and said, see, pull down her pants, said, see, I'm a boy, like, and, and 
my favorite memory of this is that is that the article in the Sun <laughs> quoted the father as saying, "I love the Sun. <laughs> That's part of this story." The father said, um, "She made me feel it." Yeah, and I did, and I and I did feel rather lifeless. Anyway, the, wow. if anybody thought Toronto doesn't have its gothic stories, sure it does, and that happened to a cab driver, and it made me, you know, at the time it was like that could have been me. Yeah, that's, um, but that made you nervous. Yeah, sure. I mean, when I drove cab, it was not a very dangerous job, as dangerous as apparently it became. I got mugged once, um, and I never got physically assaulted, and. And, you know, some weird things happen between hookers and pimps and things like that. The basic effect that cab driving had on me was it unsheltered me. That's mm-hmm. basically like I was actually well, you, for years afterwards, the film, the early films that I wanted to make had a more dark film noir thing. That's when I was trying to make fiction films. Right. And that probably came out of driving cab because I I became aware that... Not like, I don't know how to say truth is stranger than fiction. I just became aware that all kinds of dark stuff that I'd seen in movies that I thought were from movies was real. You've brought up uh, the old man a couple times. It feels like that growing up and having that a certain, I don't know if it was an expectation or what you thought life was going to be. Um, and then your cab experience and you talking about, you know, uh, the way you were being treated by cops as compared to the way your father was. Uh, what, what was the old man's business? That, uh, I thought that's, you know, it's weird. You know, I don't, I wish people asked me more about my father. I'll, I'll tell you, here's something. My father was an accountant. Okay. He was a Jewish accountant. He was, he was a wealthy Jewish accountant who voted NDP. I don't, this isn't on the nose what you're asking me, but so my girlfriend her father has an astonishing story uh, involved. He grew up in Latvia in around 1940, controlled by the Soviets, and then the Soviets left and the Nazis came in. And then, and he has a diary, and my girlfriend, Banyata, is turning his diary into a sort of semi-fictional, non-fiction novel. Mm-hmm. So last year, she went to Germany and Poland and drove around to all those spots that her father went on his trek through Europe as a soldier in the German army. And it was astonishing to me that she was carrying out this research and driving 500 miles to stand in a spot that Bruno stood. I ended up saying to her, kind of like, I'm amazed you're doing this. And she said, well, your father, as you've told me, went into the RCAF, left Canada, went overseas essentially in 1939, didn't return till 1945. The entire war, my father was overseas. How come you don't, like, how come you're not more interested? Right. And what it made me realize was that my father, who was not a quiet man, and not that he wasn't allowed, but, I mean, he, he liked to talk. He sure. liked to tell stories. Ron Davis, the musician, has talked about how his parents, uh, you know, were Holocaust survivors, and they're very chatty about it, too. I mean, very, pretty vocal, generally no, but speaking. I'm, what I'm know? saying is that my father never said anything okay. about the war. Right. He never told a single story. He, he, he said he had a lot of sort of quaint 
expressions. And in this case, he would say, I never fired a shot in anger. Mm. So he was saying that he was not out there killing people. Right. He said he was out doing reconnaissance. He told us that as if to say, yeah, big deal, reconnaissance. Yeah. But then you see some old World War II movie, and you see that the reconnaissance were flying over Germany, and that flak was hitting the air, and some reconnaissance planes didn't come back. Of course. So anyway, the, the it's just weird to think that my father was traumatized at a young age and never talked about it. There's no other explanation for the fact that he didn't talk about something that, you know, you and I would be dining on for the rest of our lives, telling stories. You know, people, I tell stories about being in India or something, nothing compared to, can you imagine being in World War II? I, I do think about, I mean, my grandfather was in the war and uh, was silent as a church mouse. I mean, he just really had nothing to say about it whatsoever. Know, it's amazing. It, and it is amazing considering the experiences that he must have had. Uh, it just... It's actually sad. It, it says something more about, you know, the worth of life and death, uh, the state of the ego, you know, in those uh, well, were they, days. Were they you know, sheltering us? I don't know. Right. I, I just think it wasn't so much about me all the time for uh, when you start to go back a few generations. It's not like, hey, I've got I'm just going to tell you everything that's on my mind. I think that just wasn't always. I guess. The case, I mean, you know, the the. You know, before I started making documentaries, I didn't have any particular philosophy of, like, what documentaries are for or why we make them or why we watch them or why I make them or something like that. But at a certain point, I heard somebody say something like, our purpose on this earth is to tell each other our stories. And so... We that, love it. That became really, like, a important thing to hear. And that's why I sort of feel like when I ask people to be in documentaries, I sort of feel like, you know, almost I should give them a card saying, some of you will be called upon, some of you won't be. But if you're called upon, it's almost like your human duty to answer the call. Right. And so now I do tell people a lot of stories, but, you know, like I started making films where I started talking about myself. And again, people would be like, Especially your earlier Do, films. Yeah, yeah, doesn't that... Uh, Vinyl and doesn't that, like, Don't you feel embarrassed? Don't you feel this? Don't you feel that? And it's kind of like, well, nobody's made me feel embarrassed. Maybe the people that think I should be embarrassed, maybe they're not talking to me. But the other thing I learned was that, and here's another thing that somebody said, which became really important to me. They said, the more specific, the more universal. If you... Tell that detail of the story that you remember that you dare not even say because you think you're the only one who ever had that experience or that thought. That's when people relate to it. When you stay general, they don't know what you're talking about. When you say to yourself, this is crazy what I'm doing here, unless the voices that brought you there to do that shut up and say, okay, you're right, it's crazy, we give up. Telling yourself it's crazy doesn't seem to affect you, or it certainly doesn't ever hasn't ever seemed to affect me. You know, like my friend told me a story about his father, who was an alcoholic, and you know, I was sort of listening to the story, and then he said, 
And, and then he got to the part of the story where his father picked up an ashtray, a big, heavy glass ashtray. Yeah, and threw style. it yeah. at his mother. Wow. When he told that detail, it was like, ah, then I could see it. Then I could feel it. Then I could relate to it. That's what alcoholism oh, but is. But that's yeah. the hard, you know, not easy part of the story to tell. I believe in those things. I believe that we make life better for each other by telling stories. I don't know. Are people walking around thinking, I'm the only one who's ever felt like this, this is so lonely. And so you're supposed to go, no, you're not You're not the only one who's ever felt like that. You're far from the only one who's felt like that. You're looking at me, you think I've never felt like that. Actually, I felt like that well, five minutes ago. About a half an hour ago, I decided that I really don't want to see anybody that I know ever again. And so what I have to do is finish this film and have it do enough for me that I can leave here and never come back. We have an isolation problem, maybe more than ever right now, uh, with the way things have been set up, with the internet, with video games, with uh, the way people uh, are having a harder and harder time to connect. And so when I walk out of an Alan Zweig film, I, I think to myself, I just I have a far better understanding of that group of people, of that profession, of whatever led to that jail time, of somebody who was in a wonderful position of national attention who no, no longer has that. You've, you've given me a roadmap, and it's, uh, it is so rewarding every time, and I just walk out into the world and feel like I can communicate with people better because I have an understanding of what I've experienced. In well, film, I don't so. think that's going to happen with my next film. but <laughs> I do. But I do. I, I know making, I do. Uh, I don't know. We'll I see. know I will. Yeah. I'm not trying to do that right. with my next film. I'm, I'm, making a, I'm making a sequel to the film that started all this, which was Vinyl. Oh, my goodness. Vinyl 2, Electric Boogaloo. Vinyl 2.0, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I'm calling it Records. I'm making this film. It's about record collecting and about vinyl. And I could probably do the whole film right here in my house. But... The truth is, it's not just that I don't like looking at myself for a whole film, but other people are more interesting. Well, some people are more interesting. My name is uh, Charles, and I'm a record collector. I got almost every Monkeys album on the original label, right. lots of uh, Frank Zappa and the Mothers on, on Verb and Discreet, and uh, almost all the turtles on White Whale and different things like that. You can see Sue's shirt there. She, she drew Frank Zappa on there herself. Frank see? Zappa for president. And, and for people who, who maybe have never seen it, I'll, I'll point out this was, uh, I guess you could argue it put you on the map. And uh, it, it was very much about you and your philosophy on life and your experience in life, but really centered around people who have a, a real addiction with collecting records. And that continues in 2019. Lucky you. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, when I started to make it, I didn't realize that it would be such a cry for help. But as soon as I started introducing my own stories into this documentary about record collectors, the my own point of view, which was uh, collecting records as great as they are and as much as I love the music, has kept me from having a career, a family, or yeah. a child. It's this anchor on and your life. so yeah. essentially, it's like 20 years later, and I have a daughter and a family and a profession, a career. But I still love records, and I still buy them, and I still think about them, and I still 
go like Do you still have a lot of records in your house? Yeah. (laughs) See, I bought bought one of those little battery-powered portable record players, and I have a a cabin up in the woods, and I'd like to have some music. So all my vinyl has ended up in this cabin because I just, I I like it up there. Yeah, well, that's, you know, um, in 2000 or something, before CDs disappeared, I was listening to a lot of CDs. Right. And initially, I was even listening to a lot of stuff on my computer, MP3s and stuff like that. CDs were easier to offload, weren't they? You remember that? CDs were easier to, I, to I was, sell. Yeah, well, but even not even so much that. I collected both, just like you. And when I had to get rid of some, it was the records that kind of broke my heart. It was CDs. I was like, well, they're all yeah, on the computer well, that's, now. That's, that's true. The, the yeah. CDs were, easy, were more disposable, Yeah, which is exactly the paradox of why some people like vinyl. But anyway, CDs went away. I didn't. Then I didn't have a CD player anymore. Yeah. And then I. Was, I feel like I, I might giving, have one. <laughs> I was giving somebody a record. Yeah. And I played it before I gave it to them, and it just sound like the something about it sounded so great. I just like oh. Oh so, no. So so I'm sort of back in the place where I was 20 years ago, where the music I listened to on record. It does not fully represent my musical taste. Right. It's a fairly narrow slice of my musical taste, but that's where I live. I don't, certain kind of stuff that I like, I don't listen to anymore unless it's on vinyl. So right. when I listen to music, I listen on vinyl. I know what you mean. When you actually want to, as opposed to just hearing music and you actually want to listen to it, putting something on the record player is a nice way to go about that because uh, it's just there's a, such a, a tactile connection. People talk about it all the time. It sounds great because it's analog, or at least some of it is, you know, and so you can get kind of uh, uh, specific. Yeah, there's lots it. of, I mean, I have a, I have a, you know, various raps sort of that I make about why I like records, and I'm not sure what the reason is, but all, I mean, one of the reasons is it's fun to look for them. It's fun to go to record stores. It's fun to go. I was just in Calgary and they have this store called Record Land and Record Land displays the records I want, which are the used records in the way that I most dread before I go to a store. It's like, oh, I hope they don't have them like that, which is they have shelves of records. Right. And oh, I know narrow, what you mean. narrow corridors, and you walk between the corridors, and you have to. So you're looking at the you're spines of the up records, and you're right. looking at the spines. Yeah, yeah. You can't flip through them. Yeah, you, you can't gotta, browse. Gotta, gotta have the flip through. <laughs> but this place in Calgary had it's sort of like the records that I like, which are very obscure yeah. and which nobody's ever heard of. Uh-huh. I guess they have a dearth of those customers, so these records were just like lying around, like crazy records. Uh-huh. Now, as it turned out, many of them were things I already had. But anyway, I, I'm did, just you, saying. Did you have to check another bag on the way that, home? That, no, I always bring a bag <laughs> for that purpose. Right, good. The difficulty and frustration and even deep disappointment of looking for records that way kind of drove me, like in almost in a masochistic way, to sweat through another hour of like squeezing past guys to like yeah. try to look at the R's even though they're right against the wall and there's no way to get behind them. Right. So so, so as you start to put together this new film, I mean, what is it, you know, here's my personal journey now around these records? Well, or? I'm, I'm, 
I'm trying to, it's almost like a kind of right the wrong of the first film. In the first film, if somebody said to me, I have all these records because I love music, I would just dismiss that. Like, right. ha having <laughs> 2,000 records in the corner over there, which you haven't even listened to yet, yeah. that's not because you love music. Right. That's how I felt. But the thing is, I dismissed it too much. And, and recently, in the last couple of years, I've been online enjoying these online communities where people... There's one called Now Playing, and that's basically, there's a few more like that, but it's basically a guy says, takes a picture of a record, says, this is what I'm now playing. Right. And then people go, oh, I know that record, or I don't know that record. Oh, I like a third record. And I have experienced such a joy talking about records with other people, mostly in the U.S., and we are talking about the music. Yeah. There's no doubt that's what we're talking about. It's not, not, the, not the addiction, not the, uh, no, the cover No, it's almost like, we, like that. Yeah. we accept that as a given. That's running underneath <laughs> right. the whole thing. None of us would be there if we weren't, you know, record nuts sure. or, or, or something. But that's Slight not what we're hoarders. talking about. Yeah. So that just made me go like, even though it's way easier to talk about obsession and craziness and... It'd probably be hard to make the film if you didn't let a little bit of that in. Yeah. I'm going to try and make a film about music and about everybody likes music when they're 18, but most people let it go. Mm -hmm. And then there it becomes are people, tough work. There are people 50 years later still like, what was it? What did music give me? What does it give me that it's been arguably the most constant source of? joy and inspiration and obsession and probably dysfunction too. That's, you know, it's more important to me than movies, well, for one, sure. One writer said, uh, I read recently, you get 18 listens of that song that you just discovered before that's it, the shine's worn off and mm, whatever, that, interesting. whatever that initial... Uh, that's funny because, you know, most collectors are obsessed with a few artists who they were aware of when they were kids. I'm not in contact with those people, but the vast majority of actual true record collectors, they collect Elvis, they collect the Beatles, they collect the Stones, and they want nothing more than another pressing of a Beatles thing. And they apparently, assuming they listen to their records, they've listened to Sgt. Pepper's thousands of times. Well, right. I, Nile Rogers just did an interview because he's recut uh, Abbey Road and producer of the Beatles, Sir George Martin, so Giles Martin. Uh, he's just recut the uh, uh, Abbey Road record, and he talked about that, that the reason it'll get so much interest is because people will be listening for those minor right. changes, and, and that is exciting, I guess, on some level. I guess. For, for, for some me, people, you know. For me, the records that I am most interested in certainly are connected to the records that I liked when I was 18, but the actual records I liked when I was 18, I don't have almost any of them. Right. And if I never hear them again, somebody was talking about Van Morrison the other day and was like, I have Moondance, but I may never play it again yeah. because I played the crap out of that I record. understand that, yeah. And so then somebody, well, have you heard Vidin Fleece? And it's like, well, actually weird. I, I totally skipped Vidin yeah, Fleece. Yeah, for this odd Nick Drake like, record or whatever. Oh, Vidin Fleece is the one... That's most like Astral Weeks. 
That is true. I don't even really want to hear Astro Weeks again. Right. I heard that too much. Yeah. So I'm obsessed with things that remind me of those things. Right. But aren't those things. I don't like anything. I And I don't have Sgt. Pepper's. Like, I don't... And I don't want to hear Sgt. Pepper's. Pretty hard and, Pretty hard to feel like and, you want to put it on. No, yeah. I wouldn't want to hear it. And it's Inle- not to, unless it has been given some new coat of paint that you think, okay, no. No, no. <laughs> no and actually, All that's right. I went online to say once that this film yesterday, yeah. the thing that bugged me about that film is, like, if you were about to put out some Beatles songs that nobody's ever heard yeah. to be famous, you would not do... For the benefit of Mr. Kite. Right. Like, come on. That that would not... Anyway, yeah, people like that. I'm shocked. I don't care how how good they were. Yeah. I'm shocked that people like them, as mu- like, like the Beatles as much as they do. They got a whole channel on the Sirius and all that, but uh, I don't know how people do it either. Two things I want to ask you before I let you go. Okay. Uh, one is... is how much of this are you going to use? I don't know. We'll see. The the awards. I, I mean, it's been a, a pretty solid. You know, ever. there was a little period there, and now I'm done. I I no more very, awards. I feel very strongly that I that the world their message has gone out quietly into <laughs> jury's ears. You know, he's had enough. Yeah. Um, I don't think I'm going to get any more awards. Like I I can actually feel. I was recently at a festival and. I mean, it's like, I think I know my film was better than the ones that won. I think it didn't win, partly because... This is why people hate award shows like, and stuff. They're just like, yeah. come on. Like, yeah. Although I haven't won that many awards. Like, right. I won two awards at TIFF and two uh, Canadian Screen Awards. So yeah. I have four... Genie Award for uh, A Hard Name. Um, what else? When uh, Jews Were Funny was Best, best Canadian, Canadian feature, feature Film. And Hurt won... The Platform Award and Best Canadian Feature, like the Canadian Screen Award. So that's four. You know, they're they, all pretty big. They were happened in a short. The Platform Award that I won at TIFF, that was really thrilling because the thing about okay, so the thing about awards is they are entirely based on the jury you get. Yeah, which makes sense. And maybe most juries. Let's be generous and say. Maybe most juries would agree on what the best five films were. Right. Maybe. Yeah. But, um, you know, the the jury for When Jews Were Funny at TIFF, that was the jury to have for that film. Right. They got that film. Another jury wouldn't have, and that's why I didn't think I'd win and why people were shocked I won. When the platform came out, this was a jury of international filmmakers of some rep- Pute, whose films I knew, yeah. who never met me and didn't know me. Yeah. So there any kind of Homer, oh, you know the guy. Right. They're friends of yours. That was out the window. That was out the window. Yeah. Like, and Yeska Hall and Claire Denis, that was given to me by people, re, a real Palm Door style jury gave me that prize. That was a real thrill. Let's talk about that film for just a moment. Hurt. Uh, I think the last time you and I talked might have been for Hurt. Okay. Um, and then you did the, the follow-up film. I never, ever thought in my life I would put myself to this level. The run really gave him an addiction for the attention. He can't figure out why he's not doing better. And it's driving him nuts. 
Everybody thought he was copying Terry Fox. It's sad, you know, what he's been through. Mind you, a lot of that is his own fault. The people of Canada are guilty. It's their fault because of where I am. What's difficult for you right now in life? We use crystal meth. And my life is chaos. You piece of shit, you get out of here! Get out of my house! Get out of here, you fucking junkie! When did the criminal record start? Maybe a year, two years after the run? And it hasn't stopped since. I didn't live up to your expectations. Once I found out that they were actually sleeping together, his adulterous fucking bitch in there. Fuck, I'm so mad. I don't know how to deal with this right now. I don't. I don't even have a place to live. Get out of here! Fuck you! Fucking you! Fuck you, man! I feel that I got bad hand of cards. I don't buy any of it. Is that fear and the confusion? You've had it all your life. If I say that I was chosen to do this, will you think I'm crazy? How's Steve? Are you ever hear from Steve? Yeah, Steve Fanyo. I hear I am in contact with him every six months or so on Facebook. As far as I know, he's still in Powell River, right. where we left him in that film Hope. Yeah. And he's still with Lisa Marie, who he was with at that time. I don't know anything else. I well I I I know a couple of things, but I guess I have certain assumptions about how he's living, but what I think is that he's living in Powell River and that he's doing better than he was when he was living in Surrey right. because he's living in Powell River. Right. So and just... whether, whether he's, um, you know, I won't speculate whether he's on the straight and narrow. Mm -hmm. I have a feel, but I feel like the atmosphere and the town is better for him than Surrey was. And so... He's probably more healthy and happy in this place we left him. They were great films. I think you did a great service for him. And, and you know, for a um, guy who didn't have much of a, a legacy and, and just didn't have any attention around him to at least say to people, well, hey, you know, this is what's happened. Yeah, and, that's a funny thing because, yeah. I mean, people who, there, people who saw the films did not exactly admire him right. when they saw it. No. But... Uh, yeah, it's funny about those films because one lasting legacy for me is that I just have a bug up my bum about Terry Fox Run. Like I was just at my daughter's school, yeah. and it's like you they get, have these posters of Terry Fox, and then they say, perseverance. Okay, right. that's probably inarguable. Yeah, perseverance. But then it says, compassion. Right. Be like Terry, had compassion. Where's your proof that Terry Fox had compassion? What did Terry Fox do at 18 or something. In fact, I've heard interviews with Terry Fox where I could argue the opposite. <laughs> that he was trying to he was trying to prove to people he had sort of a lack of compassion for people in his position right. who weren't getting out there like he was. Right. He was trying to make them he was trying to show people, no, nah, we're not all lazy like the other guy who's sitting in his couch. Anyway, but I'm the, sure the, people the, I mean my friend Christian brings it up all the time. Uh, Steve finished. Yeah. Steve made it to the other end. I mean, that's got to be worth something. Yeah, see, I mean, that my, to me, the film is partly about what would Terry Fox be like if he had lived? Yeah. Would he still be the hero if he, you know, that's how you can be a hero, by dying. Right. Nothing against Terry Fox. 
I have nothing against Harry Fox. I just don't, I don't like the selling job of him as, you know, it's well, like, it, it does become my a little, daughter, you know, your kid, our kids get branded. It, it becomes a little flowery, a little more flowery and a little, the, the tail gets a little taller, I think as the years go by and, uh, and well, it's, 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 it's all, I mean, the Canadian Cancer Society, right. People after Terry Fox, including Steve, went to them and said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to pogo across the country. I'm going to do this. Right. And they all said, well, not on our dime. We have Terry Fox. Right. And we are going to milk this for the next century. And so they have. Anyway, if any of your listeners want to send me stories of Terry Fox showing his compassion, I'd be interested to hear. But I don't think, yeah, I've never heard any story about Terry Fox that proved he had compassion. <laughs> Uh, Alan, it, it was wow. <laughs> and, uh, what a pleasure. And uh, I, I really uh, admire Coppers. I hope everybody gets a, a chance to see it. And um, and then go back into the catalog, uh, vinyl, and I guess we're getting vinyl 2.0 at some point. And then uh, 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 Hard Name, I think, is must-watch documentary uh, viewing. And I think I, I blew it there with the Terry Fox. No, no, I think Take you down, but I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. I don't believe in heroes. That's a good place to end it. Thank you, Alan. Thank you. There he goes. It's hard to uh, put that man in a box. I love him. I love his work. And he is a force of very specific energy. His films always allow me to educate myself emotionally, and I, uh, I hope you'll dip into the catalog. All the great films. It sounds like he's making a second vinyl uh, documentary. Uh, look for Coppers, by the way, on TV and online. It is his latest, and I think it's uh, one of his greatest, even if he di- might disagree. I also want to thank our sponsors, Red Eye Media and Crow's Theater today. Head to Crow's Theater to see Secret Life of a Mother. It runs through February 23rd crowstheater.com for timing and tickets. And thanks very much for listening. Uh, We are back on Thursday with another edition of our Remix series. So later this week, the great DJ Scratch Bastard, who uh, tours all over the world with his magical skills on the turntables. We're very much looking forward to having him on the program for a remix edition. You can listen to episodes of Art at the End of the World everywhere you enjoy podcasts, artattheendoftheworld.com, classicalfm.ca, and of course iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify. My name is Mark Wigmore. We'll speak to you Thursday and for as long as we can. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.